Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm talking to Leia Ippi about her truly remarkable new book, which tells the story of her Albanian childhood. Stalinist and post-Stalinist. It's about family, it's about oppression, and it's about freedom. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which has its own weekly podcast. Recent episodes include Dominic West reading Patrick Lee Fermor, a mini-series of encounters with the lives and voices of women in medieval literature, and an interview with me about Peter Thiel, the subject of my latest LRB piece. Just search for the LRB podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I recorded this conversation with Leia on Tuesday. She's currently in Hamburg. I'm in Cambridge. We really do talk about a lot of things. This does go from the personal to the political and indeed to political theory and then back to the personal again. There are some remarkable stories in what you're about to hear. And also, it's a way of rethinking the 1990s. Many of us will have memories of the 1990s. I don't think they'll be like the ones you're going to hear. I started by asking Leia about her family and who she thought she was and they were when she was growing up. I thought I was a child who lived in a socialist state who was committed to a world socialist revolution. And I knew that Albania was an isolated country. I knew it had had a tumultuous history after the Second World War. There was a coalition with Yugoslavia, which was broken very soon, then a coalition with the Soviet Union, which was often broken very quickly, then a coalition with China. And then by the time I was growing up in the 80s, it was a completely isolated state, which somehow, though, still believed to be, uh, the slogan used to be at the time, the lighthouse for all anti-imperialist struggles around the world. Um, So I went to schools. School was very uh, politicized. We had moral education classes in which we were told about socialism and how good it was and the problems of capitalist countries around the world and also the problems of all those socialist reformist states like the Soviet Union who somehow had betrayed the ideals of socialism. And my family supported that narrative. When I was growing up, I was growing up like a normal child, or at least I thought I was growing up like a normal child in a socialist country. There were strange things about my family that I somehow struggled to make sense of. One of them was the fact that uh, I grew up speaking French. My first language was French, and my grandmother always spoke French to me, and I didn't understand why, because we, she wasn't French. We didn't have any relatives in France. Nobody has ever been to France of the whole family. I stood out from other children because I was always addressed in French by my grandmother, and this really disturbed me and annoyed me and often was a source of bullying or teasing in in nursery and then in school afterwards. And so we had these conflicts with my grandmother about why do I have to speak French and why can't I be like every other child who only speaks Albanian and so on. And then there were occasionally sort of strange conversations or things that I thought I picked up at home, but nothing really stood out. The school was very politicized. The state was very politicized. My family often spoke about politics, especially my father and my grandmother at home, but world politics, as it were, not so much Albanian politics. And um, yeah, I just thought they supported me in being a good socialist child in a good socialist country. 
And and so it was a kind of moralized education. It was a politicized education. And it, presumably it was ideological, but and the ideology was socialism, but it was also sort of Albaniaism in some sense, like you say, a lighthouse to the world. When you look back on it now, what do you what was the ideology, do you think? So the country was obviously a socialist country. It was committed to socialism. It had gone through phases of different alliances with first Yugoslavia, then the Soviet Union, then China. And by the time in which I was growing up, was completely isolated. The ideology was a combination of socialist, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist ideology and very heavy nationalism. The narrative was that we were surrounded by empires. We'd always been surrounded by empires throughout our history. And Albania had been fighting these mighty empires and somehow stood on the moral high ground when it came to how one would promote the struggle. The relationship with the Soviet Union was a very interesting one because we had been allies with the Soviet Union up to the point in which Khrushchev decided to revisit the cult of Stalin. And so there was this, after the 20th Congress, this de-Stalinization campaign in the Soviet Union. And that was the point in which Albania decided to split with the Soviet Union by accusing it of betraying the ideals of communism and pursuing a sort of selfish course that would bring it to then dominate other smaller countries. And then eventually it also abandoned the a little bit later on the Warsaw Pact in 1968 when the Soviet Union invaded uh, Prague, the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia at that time. There was this commitment to socialism, to anti-capitalism, anti-imperialism, and then on the other hand, a commitment to nationalism, to the idea that this was a unique state, which was very small, but still fighting and giving the example to all the other small states around the world on how to resist these mighty empires on the one hand, the... Uh, Americans and the Anglo-American imperialism, as they called it, and on the other hand, the socialist imperialists, as they called them, the Soviet Union. Seen from the West, it was notoriously a kind of cut-off island nation, but it wasn't completely cut off from the rest of the world. And you had some consciousness, some awareness of, of the West, not just because French was spoken. And it wasn't cut off. I, so as a student, I went to Albania when you were growing up there. I think I was in the town where you were growing up while you were there in the late 1980s. Um, and I remember, so we were taken to a school and we were shown the uh, English textbooks and there were pictures of soldiers bayoneting babies in dustbins in Northern Ireland. And that was the British imperial state oppressing the people of Ireland. And I remember thinking, wow, this really is, <laughs> this is quite a picture of the outside world, but they, it can't be as... It can't be as rigid and cut off as this. There must be, through TV, through other sources, there must be other sources of information coming in. And there were, weren't there? Yeah, so there was a sort of, of official sources, which were very much like the ones that you described, which went from, you know, this same ideology and propaganda started very early on. There were magazines and newspapers for small children starting at the age of five in which there was a political education section in which you'd be told precisely those things. You'd be told about the plight of other children in and capitalist countries who weren't as lucky as we were to have access to all the things that we had access to, who had to work because, you know, there was child labor, there was exploitation, there were all these imperialisms around the world who were kind of oppressing poor people. That was one source of information, and that was the one that was officially filtered both, as I say, in, through the media, through the print media, through children's magazines, through the television. 
And then on the other hand, in Duros, where I grew up, which was by the Adriatic coast, we could pick the signal from Italy. So people were often also had access to Italian news sources. This was very much hit and miss. So sometimes there was a signal that somehow was based in um, in a mountain near Tirana and where the government could control how much of it they let it pass. So there was during the day they would decide you know at what times you could watch it and what other times they would just kind of shut the signal usually when the news started the signal went down because i remember i was about nine and i remember for the first time in my life i saw the pope on uh, on the news i'd never seen the pope before and it was a very striking image because you see this man kind of all dressed in white with his head just looks really weird if you've never seen the pope before it, it looks really weird and i remember that there was just this one image that kind of froze with the pope and then it went because it was part of the news and so somehow they had forgotten to shut it immediately when the news started the news the italian news started and there was a pope and then it, it went off and then in the summer we had uh, access again to italian television but through another signal that was a direct signal that you could pick it up if you fiddled with the antenna in a certain way and so usually the whole of duros in in the summer was up on their roofs trying to figure out you know how to create these homemade antennas with uh, metal and with wires and they were just kind of moving and wriggling the wires and that's how you could also pick the news at that point through this direct signal. So there was um, information that came from Italian television, from Rai, and then the other one was Yugoslav television. So we could also pick up TV Skopje. And there, you know, people like me obviously didn't, we couldn't speak Macedonian, but uh, other, you know, my dad, for example, he had studied Russian in school and he'd learned Macedonian after that. And so he was usually translating simultaneously for the whole family when there was something interesting going on in Yugoslav TV. So it wasn't just Albanian news sources. There were all these other news sources as well, although accessed with great difficulty. And when your dad was translating this this outside news, was he filtering it for you? Did you feel that it was a way that he could tell you a bit more about what the world was really like? Or was there a sense that he actually also had to be very careful to make sure it wasn't too at odds with what you were learning at school? Yeah, with me, they never spoke about, especially if it involved socialism or Albanian politics, they never spoke in, in my presence about that. So they often talked about world news. And my father always took an interest in anti-imperialist struggles around the world. So he was really interested in, in uh, you know, apartheid South Africa and the fights and Mandela and the trials and so on that was were going on at that time. I remember also there was a Nicaraguan conflict at that time. So he was into the Sandinistas. And, uh, and so he was talking to me about that. In Northern Ireland, there were the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So he was often, he also made jokes a lot about these things. So I often, through his jokes, had some kind of access to his way of thinking about the world outside Albania. But usually when they spoke about Albanian politics, they spoke in code language. And so I, it's only afterwards that I made sense of what they were saying. At the time, I didn't really understand. It was very mysterious. So one thing, for example, my relatives often spoke about Enver Hoxha, the socialist historical sort of leader of communism in Albania and they often spoke of him as uncle at the time I just remember this uncle was constantly mentioned but I I didn't know who uncle was and whenever I asked they didn't answer me so they yeah I when it was happening I didn't know how they thought about socialism afterwards they explained and and it became clear that they had been talking about politics all along and in their circles this was something that was often discussed but not in the presence of children and they didn't trust me. Your story is a before and after story. And so we think of 1989 as the year of change in Eastern Europe, but that's not the year for Albania. The year was 1990. And you have a completely gripping account of 
that year and and in a way how sudden it was but presumably through 89 the end of 89 you were picking up through the news through this these outside sources even as a child were you getting a sense that things were changing or or was it just a reinforcing of the idea that Albania is different so what might be going on in the rest of eastern europe confirms that Albania is the only country on the true path Yeah, that was the narrative in school. In our moral education class, there was discussions that, for example, that the Berlin Wall had fallen and that there were these, you know, there were protests around Eastern Europe. But the narrative had been when I was growing up that Eastern Europe was already always a sort of outlier, that they had problems and they were going to collapse soon because they couldn't, you know, the workers were not behind the socialist states because the socialist states had betrayed the workers. In a way, and of course, you know, there were also problems with the the capitalist side of things. But at that point, the official narrative was that these were socialist countries that had had problems ever since de-Stalinizing, basically. And so it was only natural that at some point they would collapse because the systems had lost legitimacy. And so in '89, and then afterwards. The news were reported, but they were always reported as things that didn't involve Albania because Albania had always traced this its own path and it had always been separate. The one thing that I remembered vaguely that did kind of certainly shook the country was the murder of Ceausescu. So this was much more important in Albania than the Ber- the fall of the Berlin Wall, for example, and the fact that you know there was this mob and that there were there had been this murder of both his him and his wife. I had these vague memories that people were talking about it. It wasn't clear to me at the time how this affected us, but I think in the minds of a lot of Albanians, there were lots of similarities in experiences between Albania and Romania, and also the way in which the Ceausescu and his wife narrative had been constructed in Romania. There seemed to be some parallels in Albania when they thought about Ember Hoxha and, and his family. So this was clearly present, although, again, it's not something that I picked up at the time. It's only afterwards on reflection, thinking, why were my parents? So they seem to be a lot more shocked by the Ceausescu killing than by the um, Berlin Wall, for example, falling. Then through 1990, as you describe it, as well, you were moving to the next stage of your patriotic education and you, you, you describe kind of May Day 1990. And in a way, the story is still continuous. And then suddenly, later in the year, into the autumn, it changes very, very fast, almost too fast to be comprehensible. And suddenly, a different picture, not just of your country, but of your family and who you were and what your personal history was, is laid bare for you. And you're how old? Just remind us how old you are in 1990. 10. You're 10. 10, 11, I, almost. 10, 11. And you suddenly discover, almost in the space of a week, that you're living in a completely, not just a new reality, but a new story about your lives. I mean, how did it reveal itself? What was the the moment of revelation? At the beginning, sort of in the summer of 1990, people tried to enter and succeeded to enter into foreign embassies in Tirana, because if you could get into a foreign embassy, then you could ask for political asylum. You were in a different territory, as it were. And so there had been these attacks to the embassies, which had been reported in the news. And there have begun some small scale protests in different cities. And they weren't public protests, but there was a sense in which something was moving. So there were these dissidents who were giving interviews, for example, to the Voice of America or uh, at the University of Tirana. There had been a student protest, which began as a protest about economic conditions and the lack of heating and electricity in dormitories, but then quickly turned into a full-blown 
requests for political change. And all these things were reported in the news as there are hooligans in Albania. This is exa- this was the name that was used. There are hooligans who are trying to disrupt public order. And we haven't had any hooligans in Albania. There are something that's connected to the West and to football matches. And they make a mess and they bring chaos and they burn flags and they don't have any sense of uh, you know civic responsibility. And there were some in the East, of course, which had also brought these uh, 1989 changes. But in Albania, we didn't have hooligans. And then suddenly they started appearing. This was the, how it was reported on television and how it was discussed in school. My moral education teacher, she often spoke about hooligans and, you know, how they were a threat to the society. And we had to kind of be strong and fight them and mobilize against them. And then in 1990, very suddenly, this protest at the university, the, the party somehow realized that they couldn't keep up with the, uh, with the request for change and that, you know, Albania was very isolated at that point. There were no other, despite all their rhetoric for 50 years, that you know, we were unique and so on. In some ways, they had also relied on having other socialist states around Europe in this weird way. And so the secretary of the Politburo declared that we would have political pluralism and we would have free elections. And that was the first time, really, in which I thought, okay, if the secretary of the party is saying that there will be a fundamental change, there must have been something wrong in this country that I never realized and never picked up on. And these hooligans maybe weren't really hooligans. I also remember being puzzled because my father had called them protesters. And so I had this in my head, was always confused about why is he calling them protesters when the teacher is calling them hooligans. So there were these two different sources of information which somehow reflected on the dissident movements, different interpretations of them and and different ways of what they were and different requirements that they were putting forward in a way. Yes, it's only in December 1990 when these protest movements requested political pluralism and the secretary of Politburo said, we're now going to be a pluralist state. And I remember sitting in front of the television and my parents then just basically said, look, We have been a one-party state, but the party has been ruling in a very authoritarian way, and this is an oppressive society, and it's not who you think, you are not who you think you are, and we are not who you think we are, and we were afraid, and we couldn't tell you the truth, but now here's the truth, and this is who your family is, and it turned out that they had been generations of dissidents, and that my grandfather had been to prison, that my father was... The, had the same name as a former Albanian fascist prime minister. And I had always thought this was a coincidence and turned out that this was my great-grandfather. My grandmother had come, who she'd lived all her life outside Albania or all her youth outside Albania because she came from a family of uh, Ottoman Empire dignitaries, as it were. And so she'd lived in Salonika all her life, had actually come to Albania after that only to get married and for her husband to be put in prison. And so she'd been deported and lived in deportation sites and doing forced labor throughout her life. So suddenly, this, this is the group of people that I had grown up with within a couple of weeks just revealed that they were completely different from how I thought that they were and that they in fact weren't committed at all to to socialism and to socialist state and to the ideals that I was committed to because I didn't really know anything else and I had grown in this society and in this country with these ideals and I believed in them and I had had no reason to doubt them before that because my parents had never questioned them in my presence. And conversations that you'd overheard suddenly took on a new meaning. I'm sure a lot of people when they read your book will be struck by this, that you'd overheard your family talking about other family members going away to university. And people seem to go away to university for a very, very long time, much longer than you would expect. And then the sort of question of whether they they got their degree or didn't get their degree. 
And you always thought it was a bit odd, but only afterwards you discovered that what that was about was going away to labor camps and whether they got out or not. Yeah, exactly. So I, I knew that they always took an interest in universities. And that's because I always thought, you know, they're committed to education. They want me to do well. And they're always talking about education and who got this degree and how they did it and whether it was easy or difficult or whether they dropped out or stayed on. And this was only later they revealed that what they meant when they talked about someone dropping out was that the person had committed suicide in a political prison. Or if they said that this person stayed on and became a teacher, it meant that they had converted into a spy. Because one of the things with dissident families that often happened is that after a stint in a political prison, at the end of your charge, often you were offered to basically become a reporter for the secret services. And sometimes that meant that your rehabilitation would be different And a lot of families who had been sort of former dissident families often also had a family member who was in the secret service, which made it very difficult for families like mine because they had to try and figure out who they could speak to freely and who they could trust and who they couldn't trust and shouldn't trust. And usually this university language was their code language for talking about, you know, different family members that they had to be suspicious of or others that, you know, to to, to talk about what were the terms under which they had come out of prison. And also usually... The the degrees they talked about were the different sentences. And so if they said, for example, someone studied economics, it meant that someone had gone to prison because they were hiding gold when they were expropriated. So my my mom's family were a family of sort of former very wealthy property owners in Albania who had been expropriated at the um, end of the war. And they had all been gone to, to study economics, basically, because they were all property owners. And then others, you know, agitation and propaganda, which was a different kind of sentence that was usually politics or political science and yeah so so they had codes for all these things and they also had codes for the names of the prison sites they would say someone went to university in the s and they wouldn't say what s was but then afterwards i discovered that it was spatch which was a very famous um and infamous prison site deportation site and your grandmother who's at the heart of this story so she tells you the story of her life when she's able to after 1990 and as you say it's it's an extraordinary story. She uh, came from outside Albania. Your grandfather was a kind of reformer and a progressive, but not a revolutionary socialist, so that they became immediately dissidents when um, Albania became a communist state. And she chose to stay in the sense there was an opportunity to flee, but for family reasons, she chose to stay and therefore chose a life which was incredibly hard and read about sounds almost unbearable. And yet she wants you to, when you discover this and when she tells you about it, she wants you to know, and you use this phrase, that she nonetheless believes she was the author of her own life. It was her life. It was These were her choices. And in a sense, she retained a kind of control over her own narrative, which is you know, it's an extraordinary thing to read about. And you heard this as a child, someone who was deeply influential for you. What did that mean to you when you heard this story? That Did you believe that these people who had been speaking a secret language, many of whose family members, your family members had been killed by this incredibly oppressive regime, nonetheless retained some kind of control over their lives? It was hard for me at the beginning to understand that and how she could say this, because the more striking the contrast between how I thought about them and how they had seen themselves and how their lives had actually been, the more incredible it seemed that they could actually, especially what my grandmother kept saying, that, you know, I have been in charge. But then I realized that what she meant by that was that there was a sense in which she thought she had retained her dignity 
throughout her life. In part, because if you think about what happened to often, you know, other relatives who, as I said, were either recruited, became spies, or somehow, you know, lost their honor in this process, even though they were also victims, there were decisions that had to be taken at particular junctures, like the decision to leave, or like the decision when my grandfather came out of prison, whether to, you know, to how, how much to side with the new government. And there were always compromises that had to be made, basically. She felt that the way she had made these compromises, she had gone as far as she could to protect other people around her, but that she had never really sacrificed her dignity and that there was something in dignity that nobody could take away from you. So regardless of how oppressive the circumstances are, it's not about, you know, she had grown up in this aristocratic family where people talk about honor and codes of honor and so on. And she always said to me, look, it's not about titles. It's not about how much money you have. It's about something that you have within you which makes you take these decisions on how far to bend to circumstances and where to say, no, I'm not going there, I'm not doing this. And so she's a good example of what, you know, I try to explore this idea of freedom, which also still happens to be the one that I am most philosophically attracted to right now, which is a kind of freedom as moral agency, which says basically that we are free to the extent that we choose to make moral decisions whilst being aware of all the constraints around us and trying to rise above them. And so Nini, my grandmother, is a good example of that idea because she's a direct victim of injustice. As I say, she comes from this aristocratic family. Then her husband, she moves to Albania to take a job in the government. Then her husband goes to prison. She ends up being a single mother and is condemned to forced labor. And she used to tell me, you know, until I was 22 years old, I couldn't boil of eggs because I, I always had servants who did this thing to me. You know, I used, was dressed by servants and I had other people perform all this kind of even, even smaller menial tasks. And yet then she suddenly, you know, she finds herself at the age of 25 completely on her own in a country in which she hasn't really lived before because all her family was in, in Greece and Turkey. But then she she said that she neither completely blamed others for her plight because she knew that she had made these decisions throughout her life and she had to kind of take responsibility for them. But on the other hand, she also doesn't completely absolve them. So she finds ways of retaining her dignity by asserting her will and making moral decisions even when to others it would seem like purely oppressive circumstances. And she, her basic idea that she tried to convey to me was in any circumstance, there are margins of freedom which have to do with your ability to make moral decisions despite these oppressive circumstances. The implication of that, of course, is that therefore some kind of freedom was possible even under what was an extremely oppressive regime. And then at the same time, as you were hearing those stories, there was also talk of freedom in a more conventional Western political sense. So the country is going to become pluralistic. It's going to have free elections. Your family have to decide how to adjust to this new reality. And then Albanians have to make choices, basic choices about staying or leaving again. That that question returns. Do you stay? Do you go? And if you go, where do you go? That freedom, that um, I guess you might call it liberal or Western freedom, it suddenly breaks on the country and you say politicians suddenly start speaking this word all the time. Every time you turn on the TV, people are talking about the importance of freedom. What did that mean to you? For me, it was really important when I started thinking about this to, in a way, sort of go back to what you were saying earlier about how there were these margins of freedom and there were these sort of margins of compromise and there was scope for, for moral decision. Because I wanted to tell this story so that I could, in a way, react to what I think has become a kind of dominant, I guess, liberal, maybe even left liberal way of thinking about the 
circumstances of other societies that are not liberal societies. And the dominant tendency is to, for people to tend to relate to other countries who don't share this straightforward liberal trajectory by thinking of their societies as a kind of moral saviors that will free people and will free countries from their you know, backwardness or their plight or whatever, however you think about it. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to talk about these multiplicity of ideas of freedom in a case like Albania, which is in a way, in many ways a limit case, because you know you can test both socialism and liberalism in their extremes in that society, and in a limit case like my family in Albania. And I wanted to sort of highlight these dilemmas of freedom and the way in which these different ideas of freedom were present and were discussed in a way to also highlight that there is a kind of risk of paternalism in the way of thinking which, you know, puts the West and Western liberal societies on the side of kind of moral saviors who know what it means to bring freedom and what it means to to make these people free agents, when instead there are always margins of dissident, when there are always margins of freedom in the country. And so, as I say, Albania was extreme, both in its kind of heroic rejection of these models of Soviet socialism, and also extreme afterwards in its commitment to Western liberal values of whatever, free individual initiative. And, you know, my grandmother was maybe extreme in kind of pretending that nothing had happened to her and that she always had control. But it was important for me to recover these different ideas of freedom to talk about the many ways in which, you know, the nuances that there are even in a society like that that looks really, really oppressive. In 1990, what happened was that there was, so freedom was the only one that remained constant in a way. There was this uh, commitment to freedom, which I thought had been the case during socialism. And then people were saying, well, we weren't free. Now we want to be free. And then in, after 1990, new categories came in and, and new sort of narratives to talk about why and what we needed to do in order to become now really free. And, and so for me, in a way, the story about freedom in the book is both how people use freedom and how they think about freedom in their personal lives and their choices and, you know, the different ideas of freedom that sort of shape them. And on the other hand, also how freedom can often be part of official ideology, whichever ideology that may be, whether it's, you know, socialism or capitalism, it comes with its own vocabulary and with its own selection of values and uh, commitments. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And it also came in the case of Albania with a lot of chaos. I mean, there's a kind of anarchic freedom to it too. And the country through the 1990s is convulsed by various kinds of upheavals and indeed, in the end, by civil war which is partly brought about by the collapse of the economy. There was a celebrated and infamous pyramid scheme that swallowed up a lot of Albanian people's savings. Did it feel very dangerous, this new freedom? I mean, you were still a child, but you were growing up. And one of the things that you describe is this new language of freedom. You're free now. So among other things, you weren't really meant to be depressed anymore, uh, but you were a teenager. And so you had other things on your mind. And teenagers all over the world, doesn't matter what societies they live in, have a tendency sometimes to be a bit gloomy about their personal circumstances. But there was this new heroic language of freedom that now that you're free, genuinely free in the 
so-called Western sense, you're not meant to be miserable anymore. Did it feel dangerous? Did it feel unstable? It did feel both dangerous and unstable. I mean, there were points where it felt it was life-threatening, whereas with, you know, with the pace of the, the civil war in 97, which is where the book ends, it was, yeah, you just couldn't go out because people were being shot and there were Kalashnikovs all the time and there were, you know, f- fights, armed fights everywhere and the school was shut and there was a curfew and it was there was a lockdown. It was completely isolated, but the lockdown, not where, you know, you can't go out because you catch a virus. If you go out, then, you know, you can actually get killed on the spot because someone is shooting. So there were points in which it was, I think, objectively dangerous. But even before that, I remember in the early 90s, what stood out for me was that there were all these things that I had grown up with as a child in socialism, and all the frames of reference had disappeared and had been replaced by other things. So I remember when I grew up, we had these clubs, for example, because there wasn't a lot to do. You know, you couldn't travel, you couldn't leave the country. You, We were isolated. The only kinds of holidays that we had were inside Albania. But, you know, after school, there were all these uh, mathematics club and literature club and various, you know, social activities that the, the state guaranteed for, for all children. And all of that has just gone with a sleight of hand in 1990. There was nothing. So you suddenly you finished school and that was it. You just went home and there was nothing else. And there were often electricity shortages, which meant that it was in the winter very cold and very dark and you had to do your homework with a candle. Um, a lot of my friends either left the country, some in sort of very traumatic circumstances, some, you know, they had left because their families had found a visa. At the time, the discourse was that everyone you met was trying to leave. So people just wanted to be out and they wanted to flee. And there was this narrative that surrounded you, which was, oh, it's not possible to live in Albania. You just can't live here. It's we, we need to go. And it was always about how to go somewhere as opposed to why you ought to leave the country. But the idea was that it's unbearable. You can't live here. And so being a teenager in those circumstances was also, you know, there were the, a few clubs and pubs that had opened, which were in the hands of, uh, of mafias or of, you know, bands of sex traffickers or drug traffickers. So there were a lot of traffics as well emerging. And these were often mentioned as normal occupations. So you would say someone used to work in a factory, but now is doing cocaine, for example, exports to Switzerland. Or, you know, someone used to be, I don't know, a bus driver and now does women, which meant, you know, was someone that sex traffic. So these were all both the traffics and the occupations. It was like there was a sense in which people just had to do what they had to do in order to survive. And there was no moral judgment passed on, you know, who did what. And this is what the circumstances called for. And that's what people do when there is necessity. And yeah, who are you to say, is this right or is this wrong? Basically, this is just what liberalism means, is freedom. And it's what everybody does, what what they can do in a way to survive. And yeah, being a teenager in in those circumstances was hard because, as I say, you couldn't go out. It was dangerous. It got dark. Uh, My parents kept saying to me, be careful with this, be careful with that. There was a sense in which they were worried about all kinds of threats that came from the West, which they had not been familiar with before. So my grandmother, for example, was completely obsessed with anorexia. And so she would more or less force feed me every day because she had heard that there was this Western disease that, you know, teenage girls contract. And she didn't even know exactly what it was and how it happened. And But she was just worried that there would, because we were now part of the Western sphere of influence, I guess, and the liberal sphere of influence, we would be subject to these same corrupting things. And so I, I went through my high school with my grandmother sort of force feeding me and saying you have to have a piece of fruit every so often so that you don't become anorexic. And I also didn't know what it was at the time, but that was one example. There were many others of 
cases where people thought there will be AIDS or there will be, um, you know, drugs and you have to be careful and try and anticipate as much as you can because people, especially my grandmother, was aware that too much freedom comes with these costs to the individual and that because the state wasn't there to look over your shoulders anymore, it was your responsibility as an individual to try and anticipate these challenges and to try and counter them. And to me, this made no sense at all because I had no frames of reference. As I say, I've kind of grown up with socialist ideology and nobody had prepared me for this liberal ideology that kind of supplanted it. So it was hard to also adapt mentally. So your family faced these choices too. They had faced choices, your parents, about whether to stay, whether to go. And they had spent the first part of your life protecting you from the truth about your situation. Um, did you feel after 1990 that they were still protecting you in that way? Did you, I mean, this is a sort of harsh sounding question, but did you trust them in the sense that for a long time, the protection had been to protect you from the reality? Now there was a new reality and they were trying to protect you from that. Did you feel that there was something therefore out there that you weren't being shown or seen that you, you couldn't understand? Or did you feel now this was the truth? I didn't feel they were making as, as much effort with you know the protection because I felt they had been longing for this freedom, for this kind of liberal freedom post-1990, for what they got basically. And so their narrative was we have fought for generations to get to this point and now we finally made it but we are too old in some ways to enjoy so you should enjoy it and you are the one who has all these opportunities and i remember so on my mother's side it was often about property recovery and so the idea was she came from this wealthy property owning family and she spent the entire 90s chasing back her properties trying to find where the documents were and to find where the wills were and to any evidence that she could find in the archives to prove that her family had been the rightful owners of this building or this factory or this piece of land and so on and she spent the whole time saying, well, my grandfather was expropriated. He died in misery. I was hungry for most of my life and I didn't have this wealth. But now these properties will be coming through and you, will, you, you, the next generation, will enjoy them. And on my father's side, it was a different problem. They had always suffered from political censorship. They weren't that because they were generally more progressive and more left wing. And so they didn't have this kind of libertarian commitment to property in their case it was about censorship and about the absence of political freedom so my father was you know i grew up thinking something and having to say something different and now you can say whatever you like and you know you you are free so my parents didn't really although there were these difficulties which i experienced and which you know i suffered existentially from as did a lot of my friends I didn't feel that the generation, the previous generation, really either identified or even recognized these as difficulties because for them, these were the costs of transition. You know, you are moving from being a very isolated society to an open economy and, you know, that it's obvious that there will be costs. And so they didn't really necessarily either prepare me or want to prepare me for this because they felt this is just what happens when you're moving from one system to another system. There are these costs of of transition. And my father, he struggled himself with this because he um, eventually became a key player in these uh, efforts to kind of liberalize the economy. And so he was a CEO of the port of Duros, which was the main port in Albania and one of the largest in the Adriatic. And he was in close cooperation through the 90s with the IMF and the World Bank, who had been bringing these what they called structural reforms to Albania, which effectively meant you have to modernize state enterprises, privatize them and lay off a lot of people. And he really struggled with this because he was someone who'd been progressive all his life and kind of identified with um, 
with workers in many ways, was a sort of genuine social democrat, I would say. The fact that he suddenly found himself complicit in these structural reforms that required the liberalization of the economy and that were the kind of the new orthodoxy, he found it very difficult to cope with personally. But he didn't really, from there, infer anything about what he had to tell me or, you know, he just, he was completely paralyzed, basically. He felt like this is, this is what needs to happen. There are these transitions, this, this cost of transition, these job losses have to happen. They are all things that we have to, uh, to do in order to get through on the other side. And to me, they sounded, and they still do at the time. I had grown up as a child thinking about, okay, these are the costs of socialism. This is the transition to communism. We need to move from being the state economy to being kind of fully free communist society in which the state withers away. So there was a communist utopia after socialism. And now there was a kind of liberal utopia after this transition, which, uh, but my parents never really thought of it in those terms, because for them, there was something that they had missed all their lives and that they wanted to have. And for me, it was, you know, it was just two different stories that were being told in two different systems, but the costs were very similar and the difficulties were quite, to me, seem replicable. It's a difference between us. You're being asked to sort of square two circles. On the one hand, you're being told you're almost morally obliged to enjoy these new freedoms. You have these advantages that your parents and grandparents didn't have. And at the same time, you needed to be protected from these new freedoms because they were frankly terrifying and extremely dangerous. And then you're now free to think what you want and say what you want, but you're not free to believe that the childhood that you had was valuable. And as you go through your teenage years and you become more curious about what comes to be called in your book philosophy, but means to your parents Marxism, in a way, when you told your parents you were going to study philosophy, for them that meant you wanted to go back to these busted ideas of Marxism and socialism. You were just curious about them. They didn't believe in a way that the freedom extended to the freedom to try and reconcile the two different parts of your life. For me, the way this was triggered was, I think, because as they were anticipating all these dangers of liberalism and capitalism and, you know, the idea that if there can be too much freedom and this freedom might mean that individuals will harm themselves and there will be these social forces that you won't be able to stop because this is what market economy brings and, you know, there are costs and so on. What was really troubling for me was that a lot of the things they were saying were actually the same things as what my moral education teacher under socialism had been saying about, you know, what there can be too much freedom. And so there was a sense in which some of the things that we had been told under socialism were kind of confirmed in this new system. It's just that the spin was different in terms of, you know, they had been said as this is really damaging for capitalism, that there are these freedoms that are actually never freedoms for everyone and that, you know, can bring also costs for individuals. And this means that the whole system is rotten. And on the other hand, similar things were being said about the risks of freedom, but it didn't mean that the system was rotten. It meant that, you know, this is just what you have to do. There's no other alternative. This is the society in which we live under and we've tried everything else. So I guess what made me interested in exploring these ideas and thinking I from a philosophical perspective, was that I just couldn't, in some ways, take anything from granted that was being told to me from either side, in a way, because I'd been told these things as a child, and I'd been told these things as a teenager, and there were both truths and lies in both of them. And there were ideologies and ideological categories and narratives that went with each of them of transition, of salvation, of what individuals need to do, of what history requires, of how this country can become, you know, flourishing again and so on. And especially in 97, which was the year where I was finishing my A-levels and the country went in complete collapse, the state effectively collapsed. There were 
weapons everywhere and people were looting weapons warehouses and so on. There had been a complete financial collapse. People for the early 90s had put all their savings in these pyramid schemes, which promised very high returns for savings. And eventually, you know, they, they became insolvent and, and they collapsed as well. And people lost their savings. Most, most of the country was bankrupt at, on all fronts in a way in which they had been bankrupt in 1990. You know, shelves were empty. Queues were getting extremely long. There was a sense of, of despair. And, um, but the difference was that in 1990, people thought, okay, now there is a new system that we could access and that will solve things. And in 97, when I was finishing my A-levels, I had seen that system also try to be realized and fail. And so I found it really difficult to just at that point had to decide what do I pick at university? How do I study? What, you know, what career path am I going to choose? And it was really hard to make a decision about career path when you don't have any faith in any of these systems. You know, you just, you believe in one and it collapses. And then the other, you see other people who believe in it and it also collapses. And somehow you have to make your own decisions and, and figure out for yourself, I guess, where you stand. And that's what made me study philosophy because I felt, well, I, I want to read and I want to know more about these ideas. I want to know more about their commitments and I want to know more about how they become institutionalized. And that's what shaped my decision. And when you teach it now, you, so you teach Marxism, you write about Marxist and, and lots of other things in, in the history of ideas and in contemporary political philosophy. And you, you occasionally get the same response. You've described it in the book that uh, you got back then, which is, well, how can you do that? Don't you know what happened when people tried to put these ideas in practice? And of course, you're one of the very few people who really does know what happened and really does know what it meant to live in the, those kinds of societies where there was and wasn't freedom. But how do you answer it now when people say to you, well, how can you believe this stuff or not believe it? How can you take a real serious interest in this stuff when we know how it played out in the real world? What do you say? So this was why, in a way, this is how I ended up writing this book. This was why it was so personal for me, because I couldn't teach Marx without thinking about this history, basically. It was really difficult, and especially towards the end of my sort of Marxist research, I started, I became more and more interested in the politics of Marxism. And so, you know, in contemporary political theory and analytical philosophy. People are very interested in ideas of justice and equality and what equality requires, what is exactly exploitation, how do you define it, and so on. And I realized that with my studies, I was increasingly interested not so much in the question of how exactly do you define equality and how exactly do you define exploitation, but how do you, what happens when these things become institutions and when they, you know, they have an influence on people's lives. I was increasingly interested in the parts of Marxism, which were, you know, power and the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat, the Marxist conception of the state and so on. And these were exactly the ones that had been, you know, terrifying for my family because they had all gone to prison in the name of the dictatorship of the proletariat. So it became really personal because the more I heard myself speak in these lecture audiences about, you know, what Marxism requires and, you know, how democracy can happen or not happen, and what is the difference between democracy and dictatorship, and so on. I couldn't think of these abstract categories as just abstract categories. They were, in a way, abstract categories that had changed lives. And if that thing had not happened and something else had happened, I would be a different person. I wouldn't be here, you know, if the system had not changed in Albania. Who knows where I would be? This is one of the things that still troubles me, because I keep thinking, well, if there had been no change in Albania in 1990, and I was obviously still part of this family that I was part of. 
my fate would have been completely different. What, what would I be? Would I be in prison because I would have become a dissident like them? Or would I have somehow recovered some ethos that would have been different from them? Or would the state have changed? Because I also knew from the history of Albania that things came in waves. You know, there was a wave in which there was more power exercise and it was more oppressive and another wave in which it became a bit more relaxed, you know, when they were, for example, with... Um, in an alliance with the Soviet Union and so on. So basically, I knew that there can be tides of history that can change the way in which individuals reflect on themselves and the position they occupy in society. So it was personal. It was impossible to teach this stuff and not think, okay, what does that mean for me? And what does it mean for my identity? And what would I have been without it? And so I found it very difficult when my mother, for example, she said, how can you do this? Why, why do you read Marx? How can you still be interested in these things? And it was troubling because I knew why she was asking that question. I knew which place she was coming from in asking that question. I knew what she had had to go through, you know, in dealing with Marxism and the, the, or at least the, the discourses that were informed by some kind of Marxist um, theory. And yet, on the other hand, I also had my own experience of living in this liberal state that had failed many people where, you know, my best friends either left the country or I had no more contact with them. One of them ended up being sold in sort of part of a sex trafficking scheme. And so I knew that there were many lives that had also been ruined by liberalism. That's why I felt I'm going to write and think about these two different systems with as much of an open mind as possible, but also with the awareness of how they actually become human lives and how they shape our biographies. And biography was a term that in my family was often used to talk about someone's background, which would determine the way that position they would occupy and the way they would continue. So it was a story of, like a confession almost, a story of saying, look, this is where I come from, and this is how all these different experiences have made me who I am, and this is why I have these theoretical commitments, and this is why I want to kind of continue to explore these ideas. And can you still find sort of consolation or inspiration in your grandmother's conception of freedom? So in in the the Western version, you left Albania you, you studied abroad, you wound up in at the LSE, where you, you are now, you teach political theory. Um, you, you live a life so far removed, not just from your childhood, but from your parents' life and your grandmother's life. But that idea that in the end, freedom is about being the author of your own fate, even if your fate seems like something that's massively overdetermined or predetermined. Can you still find inspiration in that? Yeah, I, I would say that that really is what basically stops me from being a nihilist. So I think if you have these experiences and if you've thought about these different systems and if you, it's very hard to have faith in anything really because you see how these different ideas get mobilized and they put the service of different systems and how they misfire in many ways. It can go one of two ways. It can either go the way of being completely apathetic and cynical and not believing in anything and, and it's almost like a leap of faith you have to make. You have to make a, a decision of which way am I as a person going to go. You can either take that route and so take the route of, as I say, nihilism and cynicism and, uh, and, and political apathy of saying, well, whatever happens doesn't matter. It's always power. It's power exercise. And it's of the strong always win and so on. Or you can believe that there is something about the human being which is inherently moral and which is the ground on which we construct critiques of society which is this idea that my grandmother also had of freedom as moral agency in other words there's something that's a kernel in all of us which has to do with what we as humans have all of us which is dignity and that is what enables us to create to, to kind of aspire to have a world 
in which institutions still reflect this sort of morality. And that is, I think, the bedrock from which you can construct critiques of society and which helps you from not going this via nihilistic route, which I find completely destructive. I guess for me, the recovery of that conception of freedom as moral agency and the recovery of morality as that which is sort of gives you the standpoint from which you can criticize all societies and think about how you should shape the future. That's what takes me forward in a way. Otherwise, it'd be really hard to believe in anything. I'm going to ask you a last question. It's almost impossible to answer. But given that analysis suggests that that form of freedom can be equally constrained in some ways under different sorts of political systems that the Western liberal version can can be a betrayal of it just as the socialist or communist version can. But do you do you now believe that different kinds of political regimes give individual human beings a better chance of achieving that dignity? Do you think it is actually a sort of equal opportunity thing and you just need to find your dignity where you can in the political system that you happen to inhabit and without being nihilistic or cynical, you have to accept a certain amount of fate and then find your your way within it. Or as a political theorist, as someone who, who writes about this in a different register too, do you think that in the end, some systems are better at achieving that than others? Yes, I think that. I, so for me, it's not a question of sort of accepting the circumstances in which you live and accepting that every set of institutions will have a constraint. I think of history as a kind of meaningful process in which you see how these ideas play out in different regime types and in different institutions, but where I think it's also, it makes sense to try and read history and to engage with it with an effort to learn from the errors of the past, but also with an aspiration to construct something better in the future. And so I guess one could say, well, you just look at history and you see this kind of piling of errors and uh, you don't see a kind of meaningful narrative emerging. You just see institutions that all of them fail in their, their different ways and, and realize different values. Or I guess I have a more idealistic stance in the end that still survives, which is to say, well, you can also engage with history in a different way. You can see how these ideals have been materialized in different systems and you can see about how to create a better society that learns from the mistakes of its predecessors and keeps the benefits and, and gets rid of the mistakes. And so it's a sort of learning process, I guess, that in some ways materializes in history that gives you the standpoint from which you can construct a better society and a better system in which to live. And where are we in that process, do you think, now in the West? I think we're uh, at a point of crisis. And so I think a crisis can be a harbor of new opportunities as well. It's clear that people are fundamentally questioning the societies in which they live, whether it's liberal societies or, you know, other kinds of societies. And they're also, I think, at a point where they think about the past and they think about, especially the 90s, which were for a very long time thought to be this moment of triumphalism, you know, the Western liberals won and all other, you know, authoritarian and failed systems were no longer in a way. And so there was this possibility of just having this world of freedom. And I think the, the narrative around that is changing. People are becoming more aware that the triumphalism of the 90s wasn't justified, that in some ways the crisis that we are experiencing is, is in part the result of that, of this uh, ease with which we read our history post-fall of the Berlin Wall. And so I feel there is a sense in which there is 
fundamental questioning of the categories and of the narratives and of the ideologies, which will hopefully bring to a more critical engagement with the societies in which we live. And as I say, the crisis is the first thing. And then after that, you need agents who are able to reflect on this crisis and to adopt the moral and the political categories that enable others to make sense of that world and to learn from these mistakes of the past. And that's where I think maybe we're not there yet. But there is certainly, I think there are questions, but they're not enough answers or they're not good answers. But the first thing is to realize that, you know, you shouldn't be happy with what you have and that there can be something better that can emerge from from this crisis. And I feel that hopefully that faith will be the next step. I really do recommend Leo's book. I know we often recommend books on talking politics, but as I said a couple of weeks ago, this is the best book that I've read this year. And it's a great place, not just to hear about Leo's life, but start thinking about those questions that she raised at the end. The book's called Free, Coming of Age at the End of History. It's just been shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize, the big UK prize for nonfiction. It's not out yet. It comes out next week. Get it wherever you get the best books. Next week on Talking Politics, we've got an extra episode in conversation with Hilary Mantel, and there are still a few tickets available if you'd like to come and hear the live event we'll be recording. It's happening on Tuesday the 26th at Conway Hall in London at 7pm. To get tickets, you just need to go to lrb.me power. And if you click on that page, you'll find the link. It's the second event down. That will tell you how to get tickets and where to come. We'd love to see you there. If you can't make it, you can also watch it as a live stream. After that, we're going to be talking about climate change for the COP conference. Do please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.